Now we'll turn to Luke chapter 13 today, uh, which if you have an ESV, you can probably find on page 872. Uh, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to study through verse 9 today. Uh, and you'll notice as we get into our text uh, that uh, it is, even though we are jumping into chapter 13, it's very closely connected to the chapter that we just left. It seems that Jesus is not going to allow this theme uh, of preparing for the return uh, of Christ and preparing for the coming of the kingdom in its fullness and of the judgment that awaits all of us. He's not going to allow this theme to pass. And so we'll see, even in the very first uh, section, uh, where uh, it, it seems some people are trying to go in another direction, Jesus pulls the conversation back and calls them again to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. We can find this again, page 872, Luke chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 9. And before we do, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer together and seek his blessing on his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the one who teaches us. And you're the one who leads us and you direct us by your word to see our need for you. We thank you that in your word you expose our hearts, you expose the sin that often hides within that we are tempted to overlook and tempted to cover over. And so we pray that as you expose the sin of your people this morning, you would do it in such a way that we would see your mercy and your patience, your kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ to draw us to yourself. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us hope in you and cause us to turn, turn from our sin and turn to find life in our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We well, hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but... Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it, and put on manure. And then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Thus far the reading of God's holy and an errant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together this morning. Uh, you may have uh, missed it, but it's now been, uh, oh, about 14 years ago since AMC introduced the world to a man named Don Draper. Uh, Don Draper was the fictional focal point of a television series called uh, Mad Men. It was all about the, the cutthroat world of advertising executives uh, back in the 1960s. Now, 
first off, before we go any further, uh, you need to know that a, a sermon introduction is not the same thing as a pastoral recommendation. So don't go out and try to stream or, or find or watch the series. It's not worth your time. Uh, quite frankly, it's probably not worth your sanctification. But uh, according to Forbes magazine, at least, uh, if you're in business, if you're in marketing or, or, or sales or some other type job, according to Forbes, Don Draper has a few nuggets of wisdom for you. Uh, in particular, there is one episode where Don is sitting with a potential client at a dinner meeting. And this client uh, is frustrated. They don't know what to do about their advertising because they have received recently some bad press. There's been a scandal. Uh, and uh, public opinion has turned sour and business is beginning uh, to flag. And what could possibly be done to recover the good name of this company? And Don sits and he thinks probably over a martini and finally speaks up. And his advice is pretty simple. He says, if you don't like what people are saying about you, change the conversation. That's it. Just a little bit of just a little bit of distraction. Just talk about something else long enough for people to forget what they were upset about or forget what was so offensive about what they've heard. If you don't like what people are saying about you, change the conversation. Distraction can be a pretty powerful policy. <laughs> I had a, uh, a professor in undergrad at college who was uh, notorious for his ability to be sidetracked. He could go uh, for half of the class period talking about something completely unrelated before remembering uh, this was what the lecture was supposed to be about. And we would use that in the class to our advantage uh, to try and delay when is when is the midterm finally going to come? Well, if we can push off the, uh, the conversations and the lectures a little bit longer, if we can distract him a little bit more, maybe, maybe we'll buy ourselves some time. Well, it seems uh, that uh, from time to time, this is what people try to do with Jesus as well. Uh, last chapter, uh, when we were studying it, Jesus was saying some pretty uncomfortable things. He was calling the hypocrites who stood around him to wake up to the sin that they were trying to ignore in their lives. He called them to recognize the coming of God's judgment and to plead for reconciliation before it was too late. And that's not a very comfortable conversation. Far easier, I think, to talk about headlines. Perhaps they could see if they could get Jesus to make a comment on uh, on some public tragedy. So verse 1 tells us there were some at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. If nothing else, it was at least an attempt to change the conversation. Uh, maybe you've noticed that Jesus is a very difficult person to distract. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life the way that uh, he refuses to let you ignore the sins that you might rather hide in your life. Maybe you've realized in your own life the way that, that Jesus presses on those most tender places of sin in your life, even when you begin to cry uncle, and he doesn't let up, and he continues to bring it before your eyes. Have you noticed the way that Jesus calls sinners over and over again to repentance before it's too late? That's the message that we hear again this week from this passage. It's another warning. It's another opportunity for self-examination. It is another stroke of God's pruning knife to cultivate repentance in his people. And it might not be comfortable, comfortable uh, but it sure is necessary. 
And so Jesus reminds us again today that there is no life in Christ without repentance. That's the message of God for his people. There's no life without the change that comes through seeing and fleeing from our secret sins. There's no life in Christ without repentance. And today we're going to see that unfold in the passage, I think, in two specific messages, two truths or, uh, or, or lessons that we have in the verses before us. So the first lesson we find uh, in this passage is that tragedy ought to make us see our own sin first. You notice verse 1 mentions this tragedy, and actually we don't know much about it. Outside of Luke's reference here, we don't have any other historical accounts of this slaughter in the temple at the hands of Pilate. But from what we know about Pilate, it actually seems to fit his character pretty well. Pilate seemed to be someone who was easily spooked by anything that smelled like revolution. He was the fist of power of Rome and Israel, and he wasn't afraid to throw a few punches to keep people in line. Our best guess from what Luke tells us is this is probably a fate that that found some suspected uh, rabble on their yearly pilgrimage for Passover. That was a time when all Jews came, and it was the only time, actually, that lay people participated together with uh, the priest in the sacrificing of the lambs. It was the head of household who was to take the lamb and slaughter it as a representative. And so it seems that that in the very act of offering these sacrifices, Pilate had the the soldiers swoop down and, and fall upon them in the act of offering up their lambs, and it would have turned their sacrifice into a sacrilege. It would, have, uh, it would have defiled the entire temple. And you know the way that Jews everywhere probably would have been fixated on this atrocity. It would have been on everyone's lips. They all would have been talking about it. They all would have been trying to process how such a thing could have happened. And that tends to be what we do when we face a tragedy in the world. We have this God-given sense of, of justice, this innate sense of justice, and when we see suffering, we want to know who's to blame. We want to know how it could have happened. We see these stories every week. We see house fires and tsunamis and, and terror attacks. We see childhood cancer and pandemics and, and earthquakes and floods, and we all have this, this, this drive to know where they've come from. And there are competing theories about all this, of course. The modern approach, the secular approach, is to say, actually, there's no one at all to blame for all of these things. In fact, all the suffering that we see in the world is proof, they might say, that we live in, in a pointless, uh, random, uh, purposeless universe. There's no logic to where the, the tornado touches down. There's no explanation for why some children die before their parents, and so genocide and homicide and infanticide, well, they're all expressions of evolution, that's all. And that's one answer, that there's no one to blame for all the so-called evil and suffering in the world. It's all merely our experience of, of random forces and wounded psyches. But then in, when tragedy strikes, other people go to blaming God. Maybe you also saw the article that was published this week about the pandemic, and the title was that God has a lot to answer for. That's the way people sometimes respond 
We shake our fists. Maybe people uh, conclude that, that this tragedy, this pandemic that we're in, if it proves that God exists at all, it certainly tells us that he is malicious and capricious and, and he's probably out to get you. That's the only thing we can know. And, and it's probably God's fault. And inevitably, that kind of response comes with some form of the statement of, of how could God let uh, such terrible things happen uh, to such innocent people? And again, it's a question of shifting blame and finding who is at fault. Uh, interestingly, uh, you notice in our culture that this guide, the, the God-blaming approach isn't always neatly separated uh, from the God-denying approach. Those two can coexist often in the strangest ways. Maybe you remember C.S. Lewis, uh, the way that he explained his life before he became a Christian. He says, I was at that time living... Like so many atheists or anti-theists, I was living in a whirl of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. I was equally angry at him for creating a world. And so perhaps you recognize our culture's approach, that waffling approach between saying either God is to blame or God isn't even there. Well, then again, there is the ever-popular approach that blames tragedies on the people who suffer them. You've seen this. You're, you're familiar with it. This is the whole foundation for the Eastern idea of karma. If you're having a bad time now, if you're suffering things in your life, it simply proves that the universe is paying you back. You're getting whatever you deserve. Maybe it was something you did in a past life. Uh, maybe it was some form of reincarnation and now you're suffering and, and the, the universe never lets you off the hook. Well, there's actually a, a theistic version of this approach, isn't there? It maintains that human suffering is always directly proportional to human sin. In fact, it goes so far as to think or, or to imagine that we can, we can almost reverse engineer the tragedies that we see in the world to uncover sins that some people have tried to hide. And so the theory goes that if you're suffering, it necessarily means that you are a sinner. And in fact, the more you're suffering, obviously, the more sinful you are. Now, this is one of the most comfortable approaches to dealing with human suffering especially when we're dealing with suffering that someone else is going through. And that's because it allows the spectators to distance themselves what's going on by, by engaging in a kind of spiritual comparison. Think back to the words of Eliphaz the Temanite, everybody's favorite counselor, one of Job's friends, one of those very helpful men back in the book of Job, and his life is falling apart. And all the way to the beginning, Job chapter 4, Eliphaz comforts his friend with these words. He says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That's not exactly a subtle approach. He's saying, Job, Clearly, your suffering indicates that you have some terrible, unconfessed sin. There's no other explanation for it. If you're suffering, it must, because, must be because of some sin. It was a comparison. Eliphaz felt good about the suffering of Job because he wasn't enduring it. Clearly, if he was not suffering, he was better off or more righteous or, or somehow holier than Job. It was a comparison he was making. In a way, it was the same assumption 
that Jesus' disciples had in John chapter 9. Remember there, at the beginning of the chapter, it tells us that Jesus passed by and saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Is it possible that, that, that there was some sort of prenatal sin, some sort of infraction in the womb? Is it, is it possible that God is, is punishing the child for the sins of the parent? That was the only explanation in their mind. If you see suffering, it must be directly related to some kind of sin. And we know that this is what the crowds were thinking about the whole Pilate affair. We know this is what they were thinking because that is the thought process that Jesus rebukes in verse 2. Verse 2 tells us, he answered them, do you think, well yes they did, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Is that the conclusion you've come to, Jesus is saying? When you heard the news about this atrocity, was your first thought to be amazed at how extraordinarily wicked these people must have been to suffer in that such a violent, sudden death? And then Jesus poses his own scenario to drive home the point. What about the 18 who, who perished when the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem, he's pointing out the fact that these people are making spiritual comparisons. That's how they're distancing themselves from that call that Jesus has already been making to prepare for the return of the Lord. Again, Luke's gospel is the only historic account that we have of the tower in Siloam, but you can imagine uh, how it might have gone. The, the area in Jerusalem of Siloam was known for the pool that was there. It was a place where in another time Jesus told a man to go and to wash, uh, to be healed. And so many people would gather around what they thought was this sacred pool. Maybe uh, many of the poorest, maybe many of, of the, the lame and the sick and the blind would gather around this pool and, and scholars conjecture that, that there was a tall guard tower, perhaps in the middle of a construction, construction project that toppled over and killed 18 hapless people down below. And it's different in a sense than the, than the scenario that the crowd poses to Jesus because there's no malice involved in this one. There's no political wrangling. It was simply the wrong place, wrong time sort of thing. And Jesus is saying, well, what about them? Does that prove how, how wicked and sinful they were because they suffered in that way? Perhaps you recognize the attempt at distraction that the crowd is offering Jesus. He has just been talking about the unavoidable judgment at the hand of the Lord. Settle with your accuser before it's too late, he said in, in chapter 12. Before you're cast into the prison of hell and you will never get out with your debts unpaid, he's pressing the need for repentance on the people who hear them. And there are some present at that very time, says verse 1, right in the middle of that conversation, right in the middle, and they raise their hands and they say, oh, we know who you're talking about. It's those people over there. Those wicked people whom God could not stomach for one moment longer. He had to have them cut down right in the middle of their sacrifices. We know that you're talking about people like that who suffer terrible things because they're terrible sinners. Is that who you have in mind, Jesus? Really, that's our tendency as well. 
Sometimes it happens when we see a calamity. Sometimes it comes in the course of everyday life, but our tendency is to comfort ourselves sometimes with the thought that God is probably very angry with, with fantastically sinful people. But aren't we glad that we're not like them? And Jesus rejects that logic. The main teaching is repeated in verse 3 and verse 5. Do you think people, these people were worse sinners, he says? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the rest? No. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice what Jesus does when he says this. He, he rejects, he denies our ability to determine a person's sinfulness by counting the things that they suffer. He also refuses to blame God for these things. It's simply not that simplistic. There is no mechanical, equal and opposite reaction between sins and temporal judgment. It's not that clean, even though we wish it might be. Instead, Jesus is pressing us that in every tragedy, we ought to be willing to see our own sins first. That's the message that comes to us in all human suffering. It is a reminder that all human sin will one day come into judgment. It's a declaration, if we're willing to hear it, that God doesn't deal only with extraordinary sinners like those people over there, but he deals with ordinary sinners like you and like me. God deals with sinners whose sins are sometimes hidden. Sinners who never fall into terrible calamities that expose what we've been trying to hide. God deals with sinners who are sometimes complacent in repentance because we live in a kind of comfort that makes us think that God doesn't care so much about inward pride and, and small deceptions so long as we dress it up in a veneer of outward obedience and we tell ourselves God doesn't care about that. He cares about those people over there. He deals with those extraordinary sinners. But Jesus is warning us that every time we witness human suffering and misery, God is giving us one more opportunity to consider whether we should be ready for the judgment if it were to fall upon us just as unexpectedly as a tower. John Calvin said wisely, all calamities that happen in the world are testimonies of the wrath of God. Why? Is it because God is vindictive, or he's malicious, or because he's out to get you? No, it's because God is just. It's because his standard of righteousness is perfection. Because whenever we see people suffering in the world, it ought to remind us not of what we think they deserve, but of what we know we deserve. And so here's the first lesson in the passage, that all tragedy ought to make us willing to see our sin first. God wants us to see our sin so that we can turn from it and trust in Christ. And that brings us to the second lesson of the passage. That is that God is patient with sinners to cultivate repentance. Now, as Jesus often does, he, he emphasizes his point with a parable. And the parable here is about a fig tree planted in the absolute best possible location. It's not out there in a field somewhere, forgotten. It's not crowded around with other trees fighting for sunlight. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. 
the best possible location. There it was in the most fertile soil that got the most attention. There it could tower above the vines. It could soak in the sunlight and feed on the soil. There the, uh, the workers in the vineyard could stop and, and they appreciated the tree. They loved having that tree because it gave them a bit of shade in the middle of the day. And in that prime location, a healthy fig tree produced two crops of fruit every year. One in the spring and again one in the fall. And that fruit is what the farmer expects. Not because the tree is, is somehow frantically scrambling to prove its worth, simply because that's what a healthy tree does. In good soil with plenty of sun, it produces fruit. And that was the whole point of planting the tree there to begin with, so that it will be fruitful, so that it will be productive, so that the farmer will receive a return on his investment. Fruitfulness brings this farmer joy. But barrenness brings judgment. Take a look at verse 7. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now to understand what this, what this parable is doing here and how it's working to emphasize Jesus' point, we need to understand two things about what he's teaching us. First, we need to understand that God expects fruit from his people. Now, the transparent part of this parable is that the farmer stands in for God and the fig tree represents God's people. That's the kind of language that we see all over the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 9. Uh, God says of Israel, he says, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season I saw your fathers. Or think of Isaiah 5, where the prophet, actually God himself speaking through the prophet, sings a love song for his vineyard. And, and he explains that Israel is that vineyard. And the Lord has provided everything the vineyard needs, even sun and rain and protection, everything it needs to produce an abundant crop. And into the New Testament, think of John chapter 15. We're familiar with the image that, that God is cultivating his people like, like plants. He's making their lives bring forth fruit as we're connected to Christ. And so when Jesus uses the language of the farmer and the fig tree, we know exactly what he's getting at. The Lord is the one who feeds us. He waters us with his word. He nourishes us with the warmth of his mercy. He does it. Why? Because he expects our lives to produce a crop that he finds delightful. He feeds us and nourishes us because he's looking for fruit. Now, what kind of fruit is he expecting of us? Well, Galatians gives us a good list, and you can go there, and you can find the fruit of the Spirit enumerated, but for one, at least, he's looking for the fruit of repentance. In fact, that's the that's the connection between the parable and what Jesus has just taught in verses 1 to 5. Because without fruit, the tree is in danger of being cut down. And Jesus has just said that without repentance, we're all in danger of the judgment of God. Unless you repent, he says, you will all likewise perish. So you see, God is looking for something in his people. If we are healthy, spiritually speaking, we will respond to God's cultivation with the fruit of repentance. It won't be something that just shows up once or maybe twice a year. It'll be something that fills our entire lives. You know, the Greek word for repentance is pretty simple. It really just means a change of mind. 
from one opinion to another opinion, but we can also think of it as a change of direction. Isn't it interesting that one of the, the primary metaphors for being a Christian is following Jesus, going where he leads us, taking up our cross and walking after him, being a follower of the way. That's what some of the very early believers were called, followers of the way. Well, Jesus is teaching us that if we're going to follow him, we need to turn from our sin and turn to where he will lead us. It's a change of direction. It, it is an act that then becomes a habit. It, it drives us in the direction behind Christ. One pastor said it this way. He said, repentance is that change of life that follows our change of mind. That's what the Lord is about. He, he's not just looking for that one definitive line in the sand moment. He's looking for that about face that continues to press forward to follow Christ even though our sin and our temptation may threaten or may tempt us to turn around and go in the other direction. That's the fruit that the Lord delights in. Nobody, no matter how many times we veer off in our own direction, God's mercy keeps us turning back to follow Christ. Why? Well, not because we're trying to prove ourselves. Not because we're, we're trying to save ourselves. Not because we're somehow trying to, to earn our forgiveness or our salvation. We keep turning back to follow Christ because that's what healthy believers do. That's the response that is seen when, when God feeds and he nourishes. He says, my word never returns void. It goes out and it, and it brings forth a crop. That's what happens in healthy believers. It shows that, that by his grace we're alive and we're fruitful. So we need to understand that God expects the fruit of repentance from his people. We also need to understand that God is patient with us to make that repentance a reality. You see the way the parable ends on an unexpected note. Up until uh, the beginning of verse 8, Jesus has been teaching the hard edge of judgment. I think that threat of verse 7 might might sound right at home on the lips of John the Baptist. Do you remember the way he prepared for the ministry of Christ back in chapter 3? You brood of vipers. <laughs> I'd love to open a, a sermon uh, with that as my introduction someday. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we turn to verse 8, and what we expect is to see the gleaming axe coming down, to see the bonfire roaring in the background, and instead we're met with patience. There's a vine dresser here, and he suggests a bit more time. What about another year? What about some extra attention? What about a bit of grooming? We'll loosen up the soil so the roots have, have more room to stretch out and to reach down and to soak up what we give it. How about a bit of fertilizer? Let's wait and see what can be done. Let's try one more time to see if the tree is healthy. Now we already know that in this parable, God shows up as the farmer and his people are that flagging fig tree. But the other question ought to be, who is this vine dresser? And why is he so patient? Well, if you can grasp it, the vine dresser is God as well. Don't misunderstand the point. This is not supposed to be showing us God as a sort of uh, 
sort of schizophrenic when it comes to his people. This is not meant to convince us or to make us wonder if sometimes God is angry and sometimes he's loving. Sometimes he's merciful and sometimes he's just. And, and I don't even think, as some uh, scholars have suggested, that the farmer is God the Father and the vine dresser is God the Son. We're not meant to come away from this parable thinking that there is a division in the will of God, not even between Father and Son, over what to do with his people. But what we are supposed to grasp in this parable is the fact that the God of absolute righteousness is also the God of infinite mercy. And those two truths are not contradictory. They're not in opposition. They never have been. Think back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The great self-declaration of Yahweh that shows up all throughout the Old Testament. This is how the Jews think of the God of Scripture because this is how he has declared himself. He descends to where Moses stands and he declares his name. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And if you're even halfway paying attention to that passage when it's read, you want to say, wait a minute. Is God gracious and compassionate, or does he, does he visit the sins of fathers upon the children? Which one is true? Which one ought we to believe? These seem, in our human minds, in our limited understanding, they seem contradictory. Is God just, or is he merciful? And as you read throughout the rest of the chronicle of God's dealing with his people, you realize that God is both. Completely. All the time. Just and merciful. As you read the way that he's always calling his children to repentance, you also see that he's, also, he's always dealing kindly with those who are weak. He is the God who, who thunders justice from heaven. He's also the God who rains mercy on sinners. It's the way his perfect character shows up, that he is patient while he presses his people for repentance. There is, of course, if you continue going in this passage, there is a time when God's patient wears out. There is a time when he comes, when all men face the judgment. But right now, Jesus is teaching us that this patience is how God cultivates us. It's how he brings about this fruit that he desires in our lives. This patience is why the Father sent the Son into the world to sacrifice himself. Not because God was divided, not because he was schizophrenic, not because he had to choose between mercy and judgment. Paul says, Romans chapter 3, the Son came to make propitiation for sins, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the God that we know. That's the God who is patient, the one who is just and merciful all together. I think it brings us back to that question of the people who perished at the hands of Pilate. In fact, it brings us back to every calamity and every tragedy that we witness in the headlines. Every time we're faced 
with the reality of human pain and suffering, and what are we to think about it? Well, we could busy ourselves and we could, we could try to assign blame. We could try to figure out what, what unknown sin is behind all these things or, or what is God doing in all of these things and maybe he's out to get someone. Or maybe we could simply realize that if judgment hasn't found us yet, then there's still time. That God is still patient. That God is still giving me another opportunity today to repent. That's the message that comes to us from tragedy. It's the message of Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. It tells us, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. The message of tragedy is the message of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what the Lord is up to. In fact, that's why no matter how much we try to change the conversation in our dealings with the Lord, Jesus won't let us get away from this discussion and this idea of repentance in our Christian lives. Because without repentance, there's no life in Christ. But so long as today is called today, there is time. There's time to rejoice in God's mercy. There's time to turn from sin and to follow Christ. There's time to find life in Him. Won't you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that is available to all your people in Christ. We thank you that you call us to repent, not only at the beginning of following Him, but as a way of following Him. We thank you that by your spirit you make repentance possible. And by your patience with us, you make us want to come and be exposed in our sin, that Christ would cover them. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us and lead us more into repentance and more into faithfulness and in following you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God.